Let me set the scene for you. I'm in Walmart with Camille and Camden. Camden is in the grocery cart or the cart. I'm pushing him. This is before Acadia, by the way, just in case you're wondering. So I'm pushing Camden, and he's ooing and aahing, you know, grabbing at this thing and grabbing at that thing. And all of a sudden, I feel something in my pocket. It starts vibrating. It's my day off, by the way. It's a Sunday. I take time off to be with the family on Sundays. So my, my pocket starts vibrating. You ever had that happen to you before? You ever had it happen and it really wasn't vibrating, by the way? <laughs> All the time, right? Phantom phone call. So my pocket starts vibrating, and I reach in, and sure enough, I pull out my phone. It wasn't one of these smart smartphones at that time. But I pull it out, and I see I have a text message. And it's from one of my church members. So I'm faced with a dilemma. To read it or not to read it. It is, after all, my day off, right? So I think to myself, what could be bad about taking all of 10 seconds to read a 160-character-long text message? So I, I, sure enough, I flip open my phone. I had one of those flip phones at that time. And I start reading it. But then, inevitably, what happens? I can't resist. I say, you know what, I'm going to respond very quickly. After all, Camille is rummaging through racks looking at clothes and commenting about diaper deals, and Camden is ooing an eye. And so I put my thumb to the keypad, and I start typing. When, inevitably, Camille, with her sixth sense, she says, Sean, stop texting. And then she adds insult to injury. She says, can't we have a day just for us? little insight into our family. Can't we have a day just for us? Ouch. There I was, ignoring the people around me who are coveting relationship with me. And this is not an indictment against any of my church members who may or may not text me on Sundays. But, but can't we have a day just for us? You know, it's no secret that as technology increases, we become more and more distracted, don't we? As we become more connected, we are actually becoming more disconnected. Unless you feel all snug and righteous, you've done it before as well, haven't you? You've texted at the dinner table. You've surfed the internet as you stood at the grocery line checkout. All the while, ignoring real people around you who have real information, who are really wanting to reach out and communicate and have a relationship with you. It's no secret. It's not a surprise. Research is actually showing, we won't go through all of it, but research is actually showing that all of this gadgetry, all of this wired stuff that we have, is having a real toll upon our psychological well-being. They actually have discovered that all of this technology that helps us, quote-unquote, multitask, which actually it doesn't help us multitask, but all of this gadgetry that helps us multitask is actually rewiring our brains. Did you know that? It's making it harder for us to concentrate, to retain information. 
It's making it harder for us to stay stress-free. They've actually done some research, for example, at the University of Michigan. They actually discovered that people who walked down a busy city street had a harder time learning than those who went for a walk in nature. Why? Because all of these signs and all of this information and all of this stuff was trying to pull for their attention. It's interesting. I was reading this book a few years ago. You have the quotation there in your study guide. This guy went across America trying to get a, an understanding of where people were, little kids were in their, uh, in their habits of learning and, and play and so forth. And this little fourth grader named Paul, as he was asking him about you know, where he liked to play and what he liked to do, you see it there in your study guide. Listen to this. All the sincerity little Paul could muster up. He said, I like to play indoors better because that's where all the electrical outlets are. Wow, a fourth grader saying, I like to play indoors because that's where all the electrical outlets are. He wants to be connected. He wants to plug in. He wants to have his mind just saturated with all of this electric gadgetry. It's startling, it's startling, as I said, to recognize how disconnected we have become. Sad to say that I have literally been in a room, the same room with people, for two or three hours at a time, and the only communication that we might have between one another is to tell the other person to come over and look at the picture that one of our friends has on Facebook. You know what I'm talking about? You'll be sitting there. I'll, I'll go home for Christmas, and I'll you know, be in the, my parents' living room, and you'll see me sitting there with my laptop, and you'll see you know, my brother-in-law with his little iPad, and you'll see my sister with her, her laptop, and we're all sitting there doing various things. All the while, we are not connecting with one another. What is sobering, however, is that as we sit there in that very room, there is another silent guest who suffers more than any other. Open the pages of your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. To the book of Genesis as we get a very sobering and poignant, yet very heartwarming, if we will allow it to be, heartwarming truth. We started a few weeks ago a series of sermons, whether you realize it or not, called The Lost Day. And as you can already imagine, you know where we're going with this series. But we're going to look at the last day and what I like to call a day for us. Because as you and I become more and more disconnected, there is somebody else who is becoming even more disconnected from us. And so he is saying, he is crying out, he is calling out to us, he's saying, can't we have a day for us? And all the busyness of life, and all of the gadgetry that is vying for your attention, and all of the distractions that are in your life, and all the homework, and all the work, and all the stress, and all the sports, and all the entertainment, and everything. Can't we have a day for us? Notice what Moses writes in the book of Genesis. We pick it up in chapter 2 and verse 1. Moses writes these words, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. This is, of course, the, the kind of the capstone of the creation week. The previous six days, God has gone about creating various things, whether it's the earth or the stars or the vegetation or people or, or animals or whatever, whatever it is. It says in verse 1 that on the, 
the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Now, you and I would expect, if we were reading this for the first time, which I would invite you to do again for the first time, we would expect there to be the period and that would be the end and we would move on and Adam and Eve would fall in sin. But that's not how the story goes. Notice what Moses goes on to say in verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. It's very interesting because this little verse here actually uses something in the Hebrew poetry called parallelism. If you were to read it, especially in Hebrew, you would notice that that Moses says the same thing in two different ways, right in a row. He says, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. We can sense a little bit in English there, can't we? We see that he's saying kind of the same thing over twice in a row. He says he ended his work, he, he brought it to completion, and he rested from his work. So God is putting this idea in beautiful poetry. It's a, a very literal thing that he has done, but he's putting it in beautiful poetry so as to impress upon us just the beauty of what has just happened. Now I want you to be clear on something before we move on. You probably already know this. Keep your hand in Genesis, but let's go back to the book of Colossians. Go all the way towards the end to the book of Colossians because there's something very important Though it may already be understood, we still need to have it clear in our minds who this is exactly that is creating the world. Notice Colossians chapter 1. Keep your fingers again in Genesis chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. We need to understand this. This is very, very important. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse... Let's pick it up in verse 12 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Notice verse 14. In whom, now who is the whom? That is the Son, right? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Praise the Lord. Jesus has given us forgiveness. Amen. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by who? By him, by Jesus, all things were what? Created. By him, by Jesus, all things were created. How many things? All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So when we read in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God, we're reading actually in the beginning who? Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Now, some of us may know that already, and we take it for granted. Other of us may, you know, stop and say, wait a minute, that was Jesus right back there in the beginning? This is something that I've always known, but it's nothing that I really came to a deep appreciation for. But I all of a sudden dawned on me, wait a minute, it's not that Jesus didn't exist yet, it's not that he wasn't on the scene, it was actually Jesus who was creating the whole world, the whole universe. 
It is actually Jesus who on the seventh day, as we go back to the book of Genesis, it is actually Jesus who on the seventh day ceased from his works and rested on that day. What a beautiful thought that there in the very beginning, it was Jesus himself who said, okay, I brought my work to completion. Now, on the seventh day, I'm going to cease from my work. Of course, many of us say, wait a minute, Jesus, why does he need to rest? He's God, he doesn't need to rest. The Hebrew word there is a little more accurately translated, ceased, he finished, he stopped his work. Now, we've probably read this many times before, like I said, because, and we may... We may take it for granted and say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. But I don't know that we appreciate just to its full extent what this exactly means. It's like you were to go up to God, up to Jesus, and say, Jesus, how many days did it take for you to create the world? And his answer would be, seven. So, seven? Well, what did you do? Tell me about the days, the different days. What did you create on each day? And Jesus said, well, you know, this day I created that, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and on the sixth day, you know, I created animals, and I created man. And what about the seventh day? Well, I rested. Oh, okay, okay, so it took you six days to create the world. No, 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 it took me seven days. What? But you said you rested. Yes, I took the seventh day to admire my work. I took the seventh day to admire my creation. I took the seventh day to cease from it and then to enjoy it. You see, you and I, that's backwards for us. If, you know, we, we say we have a five-day work week, don't we? But we have a seven-day seven day work week. We wouldn't say that, though, would we? You know, if you were to build a house and it took you, I don't know, five months to build it, someone say, how long did it take you to build it? Well, it took me six months. Well, you know... Yeah, for five months I built, and then the last month, I just admired it. That's what God says. That's what he says. I took the seventh day of my creation week. See, us in our utilitarian mindset, our let's get something done and and be productive, we would say, oh, no, no, just six days, and after the six days, on with it. There's no time to sit around and admire and watch and rest. But Jesus says, you know what, on that seventh day, I ceased from my labors... And I just enjoyed the beauty of my creation. I, like, I, I can almost imagine Jesus saying, you know what, actually, hold on, time out. I actually did create something on the seventh day. You say, wait a minute, hold on. We, we, we scour our recollection of the creation account. We say, wait a minute, what? Created something on the seventh day? So we go through our minds and all of a sudden we start connecting the dots. On the sixth day, the very last day that God created something out of material, what did he create? He created mankind, didn't he? He created Adam. And then, of course, he put Adam to sleep and he brought a, one of his ribs out and he formed Eve out of Adam. And then we all of a sudden dawns on us, wait a minute. God, on the seventh day, created relationship. That's what he created. I love this quotation here from one of the greatest theologians out in the evangelical world of the 20th century, a man by the name of Karl Barth. He had a lot of just wonderful things to say about the Sabbath. I don't know that he was a Seventh-day Sabbatarian, but notice what he says about this. The reason why God refrains from further activity on the seventh day is that he has found the object of his love 
and has no need for any further works. Wow. Is that not beautiful? God has gone through day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. He's gone through all the things that he's made. He's made the stars. He's made trees. He's made rosebuds. He's made all these sorts of things. He's made elephants. He's made giraffes. And then he comes to the sixth day and he creates man with his own hands. And he says, ah, I don't need to do any more work because I have found the object of my love. And now I'm going to take a whole day of just enjoying and relating and having companionship and fellowship with the human beings that I have created in my very image, the objects of my love. You know, the seventh day Sabbath speaks beautifully of the fact that God is love. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that? You know, 1 John tells us in two different places that the very essence and the very character of God, his, his very being is that of love. Just three simple words. God is love. And we see it on the very first week of this earth's existence that on the seventh day, God loves so very much that he created a whole day just for you and I to experience and enjoy that love. That didn't dawn on me for the longest time. I've been a quote-unquote Sabbath keeper my whole life. And yet it just dawned on me a few years ago that there is absolutely no reason to have the seventh day in the creation week. There is absolutely no other reason other than for God to Sabbath with us and to enjoy fellowship with us and to commune with us. As I was writing the book that I've just written, I came up with a little word. As I, I don't know how it developed, but there's this word that I kind of invented. I thought it was original to me. I said, oh, this is a great word to describe God's love. And uh, as I was writing it, I said, well, I better Google this word. You know how you do that? You think of a new word, and so you Google it. You know that? So I Googled it, and, and to my surprise, there was a guy who had already come up with it. So I'd like to say, however, that we came up with it both at the same time. He's written a few books long before he probably, uh, maybe even before I was ever thought of. But this word that I think beautifully describes God, you have it there in your study guide, is omni-relational. Can you say that with me? This is not a Greek word. This is an English word, all right? Omni-relational. You say, Pastor, what in the world is omni-relational? Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Because it's, it's a compound word made up of two different words that you and I can identify. The word omni means, anybody know? All. This is where we get omnipotence, God being omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Omnipresent means he is present everywhere. Omniscience means he is all-knowing. So it's, it's, it's derived from a Latin term meaning all. And, of course, the word relational means that one who likes to connect with others. All relational, always seeking to connect with others. So God is omni-relational. We may not think of God like that. We think of God as powerful, yes. He is mighty and he's strong and he, he, he elicits grandeur and awe and wonder. We think he has control of everything. But God is omni-relational? Could it be that God's heart 
is one that is constantly seeking relationship. You say, Pastor, where do you get this from? Well, we're going to look at three quick verses in the Bible that show the omni-relational heart of God. Just turn with me very quickly. You have them there in your study guide. But three of many, 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 many thousands of verses that could show this to us. But very quickly, we want to go through three, all, by the way, in the Old Testament. We won't even go to the New Testament at all. We won't even see it in the heart and life of Jesus, but it's very present there, of course. But notice Exodus chapter 25, second book of the Bible. Notice what Moses records there. This is very, very interesting as we see the omni-relational heart of God. Notice Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, skip down to verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may do what? That I may dwell among them. Very interesting. God says there to the children of Israel after he has led them out of Egypt, he says, I want to make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among them. Now, many of us think that God set up the sanctuary so that the children of Israel could be awed with his power and his majesty. Many of us think that God wanted them to build them a sanctuary so that we could get an understanding about repentance and confession and forgiveness. And while all these things may contribute to that, The real purpose and the real goal of the sanctuary was that God longed to be with his people. He says, I can't stand to be apart from them. I want to be right there with them. Isn't that, after all, what the name Emmanuel means? We sing it at Christmas time. God with us. This has been the goal of the plan of salvation from the very beginning. We hear echoes of it. In the book of Revelation as well, at the very end, Revelation 21, we won't, turn, we won't turn there, but it says, Behold, God will be what? With his people. See, God wants to be with us. He wants to have relationship with us. He is all consumed with having us hear his heart and he hearing our heart as well. We could just stop there, but we'll continue on. Notice Jeremiah chapter 31. We've looked at this passage in the past. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. As we reflect upon the omni-relational heart of God, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with a what? With an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God's heart is so full of love and so full of eagerness to have relationship that he says, I'm trying to draw you into a deeper relationship with me, into deeper fellowship and friendship. And ever since the very beginning, everlasting, eternal God has been trying to draw us into relationship with himself. Notice, lastly, Zephaniah. You probably don't go to Zephaniah very much. Neither do I, but we should go there more often because notice Zephaniah chapter 3. This is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful passage. Zephaniah chapter 3. You may be having problems finding Zephaniah. It is towards the end of the Old Testament, right before Haggai, right before Zechariah, right before Malachi. Notice what Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says. You have it there in your study guide if you're having problems finding it in your Bible. But notice what Zephaniah says. The Lord your God in your what? Midst. Beautiful. God's in our midst. He doesn't want to be on the outskirts. By the way, do you know where the sanctuary was located? In the camp? It was right in the middle. It wasn't like God was off on the sidelines saying, okay, if you want to come visit me, this is where I'll be. He made it right in the center, right in the middle. 
I said we weren't going to look at the life of Christ, but I can't help it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt in the Greek is the word that literally means tabernacled. He sanctuary. He set up a camp, a tent right in the middle of us. Notice what he says. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, he will do what? He will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can't you just see God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, standing over us, singing us a lullaby, quieting us with his love as he rejoices over us? I know probably most parents can identify with this, so this is nothing out of the ordinary, but it still warms my heart. One of the most amazing things that I've ever experienced in my life is standing over the crib of my children as they sleep peacefully on their little mattress. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There is nothing like it. And for those of you who are not parents, I would encourage you to get married and have kids in that order. Amen? In that order. And have a kid and experience that. Don't do it if you're not ready. But I'm sorry you can't identify right now. But... Nevertheless, you have to take my word for it. You stand over the bed or the crib as your child is resting there peacefully. They're oblivious to the fact that you are just there rejoicing over them. I can't, you can't describe it. It's just like, wow. There's so much peace and trust and, and innocence here in this bed. That's what God does with us. He just stands over our beds. He quiets us with his love. He rejoices over us. Why? Because he is a God of relationship. He is all about relationship. And it is out of that reality that he brings the Sabbath. He says, you know what? I know your, your week is so hectic. I know that if I were just to say, hey, you know, you find time for me, and then I'll find time for you. You know, sociologists and people who study these things label what we do throughout our weeks as micro-moments. You know, have you ever heard this term before? We have micro-moments. We take micro-moments to get little things done. And God says, you know what, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm not going to wait for you to find time for me in your micro-moments. I'm going to create a whole day. I'm going to pursue you through a day. And I've already taken the initiative. I've already taken those steps to be able to invite you into relationship and companionship for a whole 24-hour period with me. And that's why in the very beginning it says that he ceased from his work and he rested on that seventh-day Sabbath. I love this quotation here from one of the greatest theologians in Judaism in the last hundred years, Abraham Heschel. He wrote a book called The Sabbath. And notice what he says here. The Sabbath is the most precious present mankind has received from the treasure house of God. Wow. The Sabbath is the most precious present, the most precious gift. Remember we said earlier in our praise time, it is God's nature to do what? 
It is God's nature to give. And so he says, I've given you this present, the Sabbath, a whole 24 hours where you don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to worry about the homework. You don't have to worry about the stresses from work. You don't have to worry about competition. You don't have to worry about buying anything. I'll prepare. I'll provide for you. And you and I, just you and me, just you and I, heart to heart, soul to soul, as we commune with one another. The Sabbath is the most precious present mankind has received from the treasure house of God. In the tempestuous ocean of time and toil, there are islands of stillness where many may enter a harbor and reclaim his dignity. Isn't that beautiful? The, the tempestuous and the crazy and the, and the stormy oceans of time. There's islands of stillness that you and I can enter in and we can say, ah, I can breathe. I can relax. I can spend time with my maker and my creator and my redeemer because God has created a day for us. The island is the seventh day, he writes, the Sabbath, a day of detachment from things, instruments, and practical affairs as well as of attachment to God. Wow. God says, you know what? You can unplug. You can unplug. Just pull it right out. Now you say, Pastor, does that mean I can't check my email? Does that mean I can't do this? I can't do that? Well, we're not worried about that right now, okay? We'll maybe address that in the future. We have four more sermons, three more sermons on this beautiful topic. Amen? But, you know, God says, don't worry about the do's and don'ts right now. Just, just listen to my heart. And here that I am inviting you into full relationship with me. It's actually a gift. It's a blessing. It's a good thing that you don't have to watch TV anymore. It's a good thing that you don't have to worry about work anymore. It's a good thing you don't have to worry about who's going to win the game. You can just come and lay it all at my feet. And I can share my heart with you, and you can share your heart with me. Because I know the rest of the week... There's only going to be micro-moments where you'll acknowledge me. I know there's only micro-moments in the rest of the week where you'll hear my voice. But guess what? I've made a whole day for you and me. I made a whole day for us. Notice what Heschel goes on to say. All our life should be a pilgrimage to the seventh day. Wow. All our life should be a pilgrimage, should be a journey to the seventh day. That's why Jews, by the way, They don't have names to the days of the week. It's just the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. And every day is a pilgrimage and an anticipation for what they call the queen, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the queen that enters in. And they say, you know, on Friday afternoons, as it starts to get a little darker and darker, they say that's the Sabbath slowly creeping in, the queen slowly creeping in until it's fully there and we can be embraced by the God of love and relationship. All our life should be a pilgrimage to the seventh day. The thought and appreciation of what this day may bring to us should ever be present in our minds. Did you know, friends, that the Sabbath can be a blessing to us on Tuesday as well? What does the fourth commandment say? It says, remember the Sabbath day. So I can, on Tuesday, when I'm bogged down and I'm stressed out, I can just remember the Sabbath, and that can be enough to lift my stress from my shoulders. What a blessing it is. 
It's no wonder that Jesus, in the book of Matthew chapter 11, he let out this beautiful invitation that, by the way, was given on the Sabbath. If you notice chapter 12, verse 1, after that, you see that it's the Sabbath day. He says, perhaps one of his greatest invitations, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. See, God's heart of love, his omni-relational heart of love, is longing to embrace us and say, ah, this is how much I love you. I've given a day devoted just for you and me. That's all it is, you and me. Say, oh, pastor, ah, a whole day with God? Ugh, that sounds boring. Well, you know what? It's not a God of boredom. It's a God of love, a God of charm, a God God of beauty. And if that doesn't sound very exciting to you, well, keep the Sabbath anyway, and God will bless you as you step forward in faith. Say, ah, 24 hours. No, 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 no. I I can hardly spare 15 minutes with God. As we go forward, we're going to discover, give you a little sneak peek, that maybe I've shared this before, that God is brilliant. If you didn't know that already, this is maybe a revelation to you, but God is brilliant. There's a reason why the Sabbath is going to be the final test. It's because nothing, absolutely nothing else, reveals where our heart is in relation to God than the Sabbath. You realize that? It's the most, it's the most uh, telling thing. It's the most revealing institution that can show us where our heart is. Because, hey, if I don't want to spend a whole 24 hours with God, where's my heart? Where's my heart? We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. God says, come unto me and I will give you rest. I want to end with a little anecdote. Again, this is a story about my dear son, Camden. And... uh, I usually don't share this many personal stories, as you probably recall, but this particular topic has lent itself to that direction. And I'm sure most parents can identify with this as well, but we have a little high chair for Camden. It's actually one that's portable, and you can strap it into a kitchen chair. And so that's what we have. We've strapped it to one of our kitchen chairs, and we have it at the end of our counter. Some of you who have been to our house maybe can envision in your mind You know what I'm talking about. But it sits there at the end of the counter next to the garbage can. That's not too bad a thing for him, I don't think. Sometimes, of course, he puts his lunch in there a little too soon and so forth. But it's, it's usually sitting there next to the garbage can at the end of the counter. And for breakfast and lunch, he's usually there eating by himself because our schedules, being what they are, are so busy that we can't eat breakfast and lunch together. But usually, for supper... We eat around the same time if I'm home, which I am very grateful that this particular district has allowed me, both my schedule and the church members, to be home a lot more for supper. And that's a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen? Amen. (laughs) This is an important time in my family's life. And so I'm home a lot for supper. And so as I'm home for supper, and Camille and I, we dish up Camden his food, and then we get our food, and Camille and I will go sit down at the kitchen table... Inevitably, you'll hear this coming from Camden's little vocal cords. Come over, Mommy? Come over, Daddy? Every time. 
without, without fail. Come over? Come over? What does he want to do? He wants to have his chair pulled over so he can sit right at the table with us. He doesn't want to be off in the corner. He doesn't want to have us having a good time at this table while he's sitting there by himself. And now what he starts to do, too, is he says, Acadia, come over? Because she'll be sitting on the, you know, rolling around on the floor. Or she'll be in this little uh, uh, toy station that we have. And he'll say, Acadia, come over? See, he wants everybody in. He wants all involved. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to enjoy the fellowship and the relationship that we are experiencing. I can hear God. I can hear God. Come over. Come over. Can I come over? Can I, can I have supper with you? Isn't that what Revelation says after all? Can I, can I just come over? He doesn't want to just have supper with us, though. Guess what? He wants to have it all. Breakfast, lunch, supper. He just wants to come over. He says, won't you allow this day for us to be a day for us? Allow me to come over and embrace you and share my heart with you and we'll have relationship with one another. Let me come over. Let me come over.